Hi, I'm Peter Harper, the Managing Director and CEO of Asena Advisors, and this is the Three Pillars Podcast. The objective of the Three Pillars Podcast is to shine a light on the value of a family office and how it can perpetuate wealth creation, preservation, and education, and the value of being purpose-driven. Once again, welcome to the Three Pillars podcast. Uh, today, I want to cover the folks at Material X that wish to do things to help their family. This can be as little as paying for education or as meaningful as funding business endeavors or the purpose of a home. How then should first-gen families approach asset protection when it comes to distributing capital amongst their family? I'm always focused on downside protection. What do we need to do in this scenario to ensure my client has the same or more capital than they had yesterday? How do we protect, protect against marital mis misadventure of children? Today, I wanna to talk about the idea of a family bank and how capital should be deployed around a family group to ensure that loans that are assets of the family are protected from outside creditors. I'm joined today by Mike Abel, who is my partner in US Setup, and he regularly advises foreign families on US structuring and asset protection issues. Welcome, Mike. Thank you, Peter, I'm glad to be here. So Mike, can you please tell, uh, tell the listeners you know, what asset protection is and why it's so important in the US? Yeah, especially in the US, um, as you know, we are one of the most litigious countries out there. And I always tell people that they jump the gun a lot of time and go to estate planning before asset protection, because to be blunt, if you don't protect your assets, you're never gonna have an estate to worry about. So when we look to protect assets in America, we do a lot of different things. You have to look at the types of assets that they have. You know, and I was talking earlier about, you know, is the asset that you're looking to protect an active asset or is it a passive asset? You know, and what the difference is between those so you can get to know to how to identify them as an active asset. Always think of it as um, nothing to do with taxation, but that it creates risk. It can create a judgment. Think about your rental unit. You know, I always tell everybody if you have a rental units or you have different rental units, you're crazy if you own them in your own name. Then you look at other ones, cars, everything. These types of assets create liability in and of themselves. So with those, we need to make sure they're all in LLCs, et cetera. Then we have passive assets. And that's something we're gonna use a lot with family banks. A passive asset, think of it as cash, cash equivalent, um, stock, mutual funds. You know, we've never had a mutual fund in a car accident as far as I know. So it can't create liability. And we need to make sure that all these assets are segregated, you know, never mix an active asset with a passive asset. And we make sure that each active asset's basically in a separate LLC. Um, so these are some of the things that we do in the US when we're looking at protecting assets. And we can go ahead and get into more with putting in holding companies and stuff like that. And you know, if you would want, I can go in and explain a little bit of why we use an LLC over a corporation. Well, I mean, I think the the the, the I think the thing that's that's kind of important um, sort of a baseline to understand is you know I like how you've talked about segregation of assets and active versus passive. You know, one thing I think that you know folks need to understand is generally 
pr practically what happens if there's, there's some form of liability. So something happens, whether it's a tort or something contractually, right, with respect to uh, an active, active asset, right? So where there is real risk. So someone sues you, right? They get a default judgment or they get, they're successful in getting a judgment against, against whether it's you personally or the entity uh, that that liability sits with. And then they look to enforce that judgment against you personally or the entity that it relates to, right? And so the reason why I understand you talking about segregation is because if someone is actually successful with a claim, right, then they can only enforce that against the assets that are owned by that same entity. So in the perfect world, you would have uh, every single asset you own sitting in its own entity, right? Um, so that the risk is only limited to the asset that you own, but you know, depending on the value of entities, that can get quite expensive um, for people. Yeah. So you, you, but at a bare minimum, right, as you've talked about, you should be segregating assets and saying, okay, active assets where there's a lot of risk sitting in one bucket, are definitely not in my own name. Uh, passive assets sitting in another bucket, again, definitely not in my own name. Yeah, exactly. And that, that's what we always structure. You know, when we're looking at asset protection to make sure that you never mix an active asset with any type of passive asset because you're putting them all at risk if you do and you have a risk of losing everything. No, that's great. I mean, I think this kind of leads into this great topic. And for a lot of entrepreneurs that are going through this process of, you know, selling uh, a, a business and realizing a significant amount of capital, uh, I know from first-hand experience that they are, thinking of ways in which they can sprinkle or deploy capital around the family, largely for personal use reasons, but maybe to fund them into other businesses uh, or, or ventures. And, uh, you know, we've had a bit of experience with, you know, forming and managing you know, family banks uh, for you know, high net worth and ultra high net worth families. Mike, can you please give the listeners a bit of an overview of this concept? You know, what does it mean by a family bank? Is it licensed? Is it lending to people outside the family uh, or within the family only? Yeah, sure, no problem. Um, when we set up family banks for individuals or couples or whatever for, for their family use, we go ahead and use an LLC or it could be owned by their trust or irrevocable trust. But anyways, we have the family bank set up. It's a non-licensed entity. And what it's used for is we put capital in it. And then within its business purpose, it states that it is to be used only to make loans to family members, blood family members. And you can spell out how you want to define that. And then by doing so, the owner of the bank, you, can go ahead and assist their children, their grandchildren, brothers, sisters, whoever it might be in the family, in bettering their own livelihood. That we don't need to go to a bank and they have to worry about all the banking processes, etc. The family bank can go ahead and decide that, yes, I want to give my granddaughter you know, 250000 to help start her business. And the beautiful thing is by using your own family bank, we can preserve capital. And what I mean by that is when we operate as a family bank, we make loans to our family members. 
those loans are secured just as if we were a bank. If they borrow on real estate, we secure it against the real estate with the mortgage deed of trust. If it's any type of chattel, we use UCC filings. We create liens just as if we're a bank. And by doing so, we are protecting the money that we give them from their creditors. So if something would occur in their life, that would go ahead and cause an event of duress for them, that they were going to lose money, we, as a friendly creditor, can come in and take over the asset. We can foreclose. We can preserve our capital that can then be redeployed to anyone within the family, them or another family member. So it's a real nice concept if family members want to help other family members Succeed in life. Give them a leg up. Use your wisdom and experience along with some of your money to give them a shot to hopefully and eventually start their own family bank or even become a partner in yours. Yeah, you know, I, I love it as a concept. I mean, I think that, um, you know, particularly in, in the area of, uh, in the area where, you know, various family members start to get, get married. I mean, the thing is, when you're starting to talk about children and inherited money versus folks that may not have come from the same uh, same background and uh, you want to ensure that not only your own capital is protected but that of your your heirs putting them in a position where you know that they can they can have you know they can have assets such as a first home and or, or second home um, you're provided by the family without putting that at risk if, if they were to get married, I think is, um, you know, is a, is a major uh, asset. And Mike, you know, when we were touching on this before, you know, one of the things is, you know, we were talking about the ability to charge interest versus not charge interest. Um, I want to do two things. I want to tie this back to the conversation we've just been having, right? You know, the, when we talk about you know, structural options and the benefits of charging interest. But I also want to talk about um, why debt, when it comes to asset protection, why debt's superior to equity. Yeah, debt is superior to equity because you're first in line to get paid. If I, I loan you to purchase real estate and you're going to buy an LLC and build an apartment complex, if I say give me equity and I'm sitting there with equity, and all of a sudden somebody gets hurt in the apartment complex or they find lead poisoning, whatever it might be, and the apartment complex gets sued, my investment is at risk. Everything that I've put into it is gone if they get a judgment. However, if I use debt, then my liens get paid back prior to any other claimant. That's because my money would be either purchase money mortgage or else it would be invested prior to the event that caused the liability occurred. So by sheer priority, I get paid back. And if you work it out, like I do with one gentleman that loans a lot of money to his family members, we have all sorts of default interest rates and everything worked in with the obligatory instruments so that if any event of duress occurs within his kids, his interest rate goes up from 4% to 24% as a way to try to claw back more money within to the family bank. So it's an ingenious play. Yeah, and listen, it, 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 
those type of provisions, um, you know, I think when people are listening, hearing this for the first time, they go, oh, how did the mechanics of that work? I mean, that's no different from, from a, you know, when you think about a default rate with a bank. I mean, if, you're, if your credit rating's gone from good to bad, right, or you're late paying, it's no different to how, you know, a credit card company might treat you or how a bank might treat you, right, if you've got some form of variable, variable rate. Um, or, or, you know, any of these de de forms of default just trigger a provision which requires a loan to be repaid immediately, right? So, um, you know, I think, I think when folks get their head around the concept, how valuable this can be to your broader family, the way I like to think about it, it's like you're putting this sort of shield, this shielded umbrella out over all of your family uh, and they're out there operating in the world you may not be seeing what they're doing but you've put in place this mechanism that's that, that to the extent they get themselves in any form of trouble whether it's through as i said before some form of tort right so there's some form of negligence and claim and, and resulting in an economic claim or it's contractual some form of contractual dispute resulting in an economic claim um, there's an ability for the capital to be protected. And one of the things that we always like to focus on, you know, within our business, we talk about downside protection all the time, all the time. How do we ensure our clients have more tomorrow than they had today? Um, and I think uh -huh. anyone has substantial capital who is not focused on uh, the disbursement and management of their capital within their family unit in this way um, is, missing a massive opportunity and i mean i think the, the 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 another point that i'd sort of just put on this is that i think often is overlooked a lot of people out there would go oh well, why would i worry about any of this stuff i've got insurance insurance policies are written to not be paid right i mean you know if i'm if i'm the insurer i'm trying to do whatever i can to scale down the ability for someone to actually call on the payment of the policy and and you know, you know, if, if, if clients actually spent the time and energy to actually look through their policies, I mean, they might, it might give them some form of comfort, right? But um, oh, yeah. the large majority of policies out there aren't worth the paper they're written on. Well, I'll give, you, I'll give you a prime example of one of my clients when I was in Ohio. Uh, they owned an up-down duplex. You know, you walk up the, the first floor is one room, you walk up steps onto a landing, second duplex or unit is up there. Well, he had it rented. Luckily, we had it into an LLC, its own LLC and everything, but they had a Christmas party at the up unit. And during the Christmas party, a bunch of them went outside to smoke, and one of the guys leaned against the railing. The, lent, the railing broke, and he's a paraplegic. Mm -hmm. They, of course, sued my guy who had an LLC. Well, he thought he had insurance, too, except for they went to the tenant and started asking him about the accident. And the tenant informed the insurance company that I told that landlord months ago about that loose railing, and he never fixed it. The mere fact that the landlord did not fix it negated all his insurance coverage. They refused to pay because under the policy, if you are, have a known defect that you do not fix within a reasonable time, that defect becomes an exclusion. If we didn't have his property into an LLC and it was in his personal name, he would have lost everything. 
So insurance company's number one job is to not pay claims. So I used to work at one, I know, as a title insurance. That was the first thing we did is not pay claims. Sure, sure. I mean, I, that's the one big thing. I, you know, it's funny, like whenever anyone comes to me and they, you know, we talk about, you know, asset protection and, you know, oh, well, it seems like we're over, over engineering the entities, you know, how much is this going to cost and what's the ongoing compliance? And I, I say, okay, work out that number. Let's look at your insurance costs, right? And then let's compare, let's actually look at the risk we're quantifying. And we know, right, provided you're complying with your corporate formality, we've actually got got a proper insurance policy around that and compare the two. And, you know, I, I can tell you every day of the week that that is going to, going to result in a better outcome than the, than the money that you're spending on insurance. I'm not saying folks don't get insurance. I mean, you should have, everyone should have insurance, but, but, um, believing that insurance is going to solve your problems solely is, is crazy. Right. And I, I tell people too, as I say, always get your insurance, get your umbrella policies, However, don't count on them. Let's set it up that if something happens, you're going to be safe. Um, one thing I wanted to bring up about your family bank, too, that is important with any asset protection, because I was just thinking about it because of being, you know, like you one time in California and stuff. Um, you have to look to the state where you want to form the family bank and hopefully have some roots there. And the reason why I say that is every state in America has different laws concerning with piercing of corporate veils and stuff like that. And I always advise people, especially if they're you know, out of the country and they don't really live here, we pick a state such as Ohio, Arizona, Wyoming, Florida, that has great LLC laws that you can't pierce them in anything. Uh, rather than putting something in California that can be pierced. And where that would come into play is, say, I started my family bank, and I have $10 million in it, and I'm loaning to my kids, and I go out and get into a horrific car accident. If I live in California, they sue me, they get a judgment, they can actually go into and pierce my assets and take my money out of my LLC. If I lived in Ohio or Arizona, they could not do that. So it all depends on where you live and where your LLCs are at. What, what about if they live in yeah. California and they're set up in Ohio? We have to look at where the incident occurred. And if it still occurred in California, then a lot of times California courts will determine that we don't care about Ohio law, we're going to use our law. However, if we did proper layering with different LLCs, and maybe I have the family bank, it's owned you know, out, of, out of Arizona, and it's owned through Ohio, and it's back to California, that extra layers and that being protected, what it does is it makes settlement very, very more attractive to creditors. When a creditor comes after you or your attorney, what we are looking at is what can we put in our pocket? And we look at the expenditure of time and effort it's gonna to take to put it in our pocket. And when we see somebody that it's gonna take millions of dollars just to try to get the service in the state to, or to bring them under our corporate umbrella, then to pierce nails and everything, suddenly a judgment of $500,000 becomes worth $125,000 because we're not gonna spend the time 
to go after it. And that, that's why I, would, I would tell a lot of people that that's what a proper asset protection plan does, is it puts a big deterrent out there to say, do you really want to go after my assets? And so many times people don't. You know, we used to make a joke of it back when I did do litigation in Ohio, that when somebody came in and talked to us, the first thing we did is search for assets of the person we're going to sue. And then if we find that it's a complicated plan or everything, we refer them to an attorney that we do not like, so they waste their time. So it's just that's one of the reasons why we do all this. But the great thing about this discussion is that it, you know, it also highlights the value of using, you know, using non-US locations um, as capital mm -hmm. based well provided they're a sort of tax neutral, right? I mean, this level of protection, if you want to talk about someone, uh, you know, getting a judgment and then forcing it, that it ratchets up to an even higher level if, you know, if you're, if you're storing um, cash or assets in, uh, in, you know, foreign jurisdictions that have yeah. asset protection rules as well, right? Yeah. So, so Mike, um, they say nothing's more certain than death and taxes. So the last sort of, well, well I should say death, taxes, and divorce. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and so the last sort of topic that I wanted to talk about is, is, you know, how that folks should be thinking about this concept of the, you know, the family bank when it, when it comes to a family member who's going through a divorce, um, you know, what, what happens to the asset and, what's the value of having this type of security in place if some, if that, that's to happen? Yeah, let's, let's assume that they didn't do any pre-planning when it started. So it's either, you know, considered under the state law, community property or joint property. Well, the spouse is going to be awarded part of that or else they'll get awarded a comparable amount in some other asset. However, if, if we have that loan off on there, then at least the money that you gave your child or your family member is not going to go to their soon-to-be ex-spouse. So we can go ahead and preserve that and make sure that it stays separate property. I do know on some of these loans that we've made, our lender has required the spouse, no matter how long they've been married, to sign off on the property uh, especially in community property jurisdictions to make it sole and separate property of their direct family members. That way, if something did occur like that, it stays that family member's property. So it all depends on the structure you do up front, but you do have to guard against that because like I say with my wife, you know, I tell her all the time, if something happens between us, uh, you know, she can have everything I don't care, but she better never, if she gets remarried, give that person a dime because I didn't work this hard for that. So you can do some of that with a family bank and it makes it good. Yeah, no, I mean, that's the thing that I, I think about. I mean, there's a lot of information out there about prenups. Uh, you know, I know they're more common in, in America than they are in other, a lot of other jurisdictions. Oh. They're gaining, you know, they're gaining uh, uh, popularity in outside, you know, in certain other countries, but there's harder issues as far as, you know, enforcement. But But I think that, when you're talking about intergenerational wealth, when you're talking about a situation where you've established your bank, you put capital in it, you've lent that to family members, right, uh, you know, to children, um, if that is managed correctly, to me, that's a far more powerful than a prenup, right, because it's oh, clear, yeah. 
clearly established that it's a family asset, right? And there's fixed security over, over the asset, right? So if something happens, right? I mean, prenups have their place and it's obviously, you know, when, when if you've got children that are inheriting, um, you know, substantial wealth, they should still be going through and, and put, putting that in place. But I think the combination of the two is a really powerful tool. Um, there's an additional thing that you can do that we use in some transactions dealing with to protect against this when we use debt ink um, instruments, or even if say, like you said earlier about getting equity in the property, you know, the difference between debt and equity, we will do um, our uh, obligation document will be a note with what's called an equity kicker. What's, what that says is that, hey, this is the note, you owe me everything back on a note, but if a due on sale clause or anything triggers in there that requires you to pay it back, you also owe me, as an additional to what we gave you, a percentage of the growth of the company that you have. So we get part of the equity back. So you can even use that if, say, the one spouse is not really too happy with signing off on anything, then just put an equity kicker in there to at least the family bank can save your family or you know, your child, your grandchild, an additional 25 to 50% interest in the equity in the property. So you retain wealth that way. Sounds like a dirty trick on the other side, but I've drafted it for families. No, well, listen, I think the thing is that um, what we're talking about is capital that's being created by a generation and it's looking to be be provided to the next generation for their benefit and their, and their family members benefit while those people are in the family. If, if they're, if they've left the yeah. family, the gigs up and that, and that's not the, the rule or the purpose of the, uh, uh, of the bank. I mean, how much experience do you have with prenups and what, what, I mean, how important are they? They're very important. Um, we're a little bit hybrid here in Arizona where I'm resident now is we do pre and post nups. And as long as you go ahead and you're fair up front, you provide them with a detailed list of your assets and everybody goes in wide open, you know, eyes wide open, they generally hold up. Other jurisdictions, they're not as, you know, they, the courts don't like them as much. They'll give reasons for allowing one spouse out of it or not if they deem it to be too harsh or, you know, the time frames and everything. So it's very specific. In Arizona, I can say they work a lot better than they do for, say, compared to California. For Let's say you do the prenup in a state like Arizona, where it's more preferable to move to California, right? So you, you're married in Arizona, but then you go to California. Is California still going to overlay California's rules over everything? Are they going to say, well, no, this was done in Arizona, therefore you can rely on Arizona law? Well, <laughs> I wish I could say 100% because they should as a choice of law because we put choice of law provisions within the agreement reapply arizona law but i've seen california courts you know do whatever they want you know we are you know i always joke that you know we in arizona are the independent country of arizona california is the same way they are the independent country of california <laughs> I think California is on the fringe of everything, right? They do what they want. Um, and, yeah. you know, when it comes to law, and it's the reason why I think when it comes to asset protection specifically, it's really about US being litigious country. California is probably 
you know, it's pro probably the origin of most of the scary stories that foreign families have heard about, right? Because it's, it oh. has a tendency to not necessarily always, um, you know, accept the terms of a contract and overrule it on the basis of, you know, principles of equity or other, other forms of statute, right? So whenever I'm talking to folks about asset protection, you know, I always start the dialogue where I'm looking at this and saying, you know, because this is the big thing with asset protection is that you have to be willing to go through a process and let the claim run its course, right? So someone goes out yeah. and they get, they get a judgment, right? They look to enforce it. Uh, and then there's a question of, okay, well, where are the assets? Can we enforce it? Right. And, and as you talked about, it's, it's part strategic, part practical, part law, right? It's the combination of these three things. And at the end of the day, you, you know, you've got to look at what is it, what I think, what is it about an asset protection strategy that's driving? I mean, what is your objective? For me, and this is the way we always like to talk to our clients, it's about capital protection for your family, ensuring you have more capital tomorrow than you had today. And, and if you're that focused, then, you know, asset protection has got to be a core part of any wealth planning strategy. Right. And then yep. and it's like, okay, well, you know, what are the different layers of protection that you, you know, that, that, that you've got and it's either going to be, you know, uh, you know, regional. Uh, so you're looking at regional uh, options and opportunities within the U S or you're saying, okay, we want to make this a belts and braces approach. So we're going to step this up and move this to another country. Um, that's all dependent on your wealth, what your wealth yeah, is. Yeah, co correct. Right. It's, it's got to be material. I mean, this stuff, yeah, these, these structures and implementing this stuff can get, can get expensive. So you've got to be able to justify mm -hmm. Right. But, but it's, as I said at the start of this, it's like, you know, what would it cost to insure your risk? Assuming you could go out and yeah. get insurance to cover the risk that you have, right. What would that cost? So yeah. if you can do that back to the Mac, napkin math and say, okay, the cost of this structuring is less expensive or the same cost as what an insurance would cost if I could, could cover it, then I think you're ahead of the game. Absolutely. Um, you're way ahead of the game. And I always tell them also, what would be the cost of a loss? You know, what are you comfortable losing? Because one you lose one of your properties you can live with you lose 10 you can't yeah so you have to look at compared to your assets what percentage of them are you willing to give up to ensure that you're going to keep the remainder you know if i could go ahead and say i'll give you five percent of my net worth today peter to guarantee that i'm going to have 95 percent of it and all the growth it does over the next 20 years i'd write you a check yeah yeah, no, it's, uh, it's, it's fantastic. Well, Mike, um, this has been a great, great session. I've really enjoyed it. I think it's an area that, um, that, uh, you know, a lot of folks uh, can overlook until it's too late, right? Because they're like, oh, well, that stuff's never going to happen to me. But I, uh, you know, the, the big yeah. thing I would, I would leave with everyone is I would go, I would look at all your assets and quantify your risk the risk that exists within your life today, right? And then say, okay, these, these are three questions. What assets do I own? And then what risk is associated with that assets? Can I get insurance? Do I have insurance? And then thirdly, um, 
is the insurance sufficient, legally sufficient, the way it's been drafted, right, to cover any, any perceived risk? Um, and if, if you can't get to a comfortable, uh, you know, answer when, you, when you're trying to address those three uh, questions or areas, then, you know, you really need to spend the time and money to focus on a, on a proper strategy. Yep. Uh, okay, Mike. Well, yeah, thanks again for dying in. I look forward to catching up with you next time. All right. Thanks, Peter. Talk to you later. That was another episode of the Three Pillars podcast. Thank you so much for listening in. You can find more information about our firm at asceneradvisors.com. Follow us on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter for frequent updates and weekly blogs. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast whenever you're listening and check in every Wednesday for another episode. This has been the Three Pillars podcast.